Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So it is Monday evening, October the tenth. We've somehow made it back from uh, from Miami in mostly a, a single piece. Um, I was trying to, you know, veg out a little bit yesterday, watch some football, and uh, I don't know about you, I was getting crushed with mostly ads for New Hampshire, a couple of ballot question ads, but. Um, it is gearing up to be an interesting primary season, perhaps most interesting outside of Massachusetts. But uh, how are we doing? What are we? Uh, what are we talking about this week? Yeah, we are now a month away from election day, so we are really getting into it. And certainly, anybody that has watched television in the past week knows that we are in the thick of it. And we are, as Ricky said, up here in Boston, largely isolated from a lot of the ads. We don't have a ton of competitive races, which we will get into shortly. Neither of our senators are up for election, but we are getting hit heavily with the New Hampshire ads. And like you said, some of the ballot question ads. So what we're going to do today, we were incredibly fortunate last week to have Steve Kornacki on, who gave us an overview of the midterms from a national perspective. And thank you to everyone that listened and reached out with feedback and congratulations. It's been It's been a really fun week. From our perspective, just to hear so many people listen to and, and talk about Steve's episode. And while this is different in scale, we are just as excited about this one. So this episode is really is for Massachusetts people. It's Massachusetts centric. We are going to look at all of the statewide races in Massachusetts. And more interestingly, and more importantly, in a lot of ways, we're going to look at the four questions on the ballot here in Massachusetts. We are going to be joined by Samantha Gross, who is a political reporter at the Boston Globe. She's going to give us an overview of the statewide races and a little more in-depth insights and share her expertise with us about the ballot questions, which, as interesting and important as they are, are also quite confusing. So, if you do not live in Massachusetts, we hope you stick with us because we do think there are some things that we talk about both with Samantha and just Ricky and I after that are applicable nationally. But certainly this is for the people in Massachusetts that are trying to educate themselves you know, a month before the election, two weeks before early voting starts. And, and we do hope that if you find this episode educational, you do pass it along to friends, relatives, whether it's by word of mouth or shoot them an email or a link or a follow on Instagram or something, because we are hopeful that this will at least provide foundational knowledge when you head into the ballot box in two or three or four weeks. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, looking forward to getting to chat with Sam about some of these issues. It's always great to have these like insiders who are, we're following along with this stuff and, and uh, always illuminating. Yeah. I mean, she's, super generous to give us any of her time at all when her beat is picking up like more and more but like we say incredibly lucky for us and for for people listening to have someone that's out there doing it as much as when i might want to read about it like this is her life she's out there living and reporting on it and writing about it every day so she certainly knows far more than either of you guys than either of us do so um we're thrilled to have her on 
for a Massachusetts episode, Ricky, figured there's, there's no better way to to support it than by supporting a Massachusetts-based company like those hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks here in Massachusetts since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. Uh, you can check them out on Instagram or visit them at www.cannonhillwood.com. If you do visit them, let them know that we sent you. Definitely let them know we sent you. <laughs> All right. Uh, without <laughs> without further ado, let's talk to Samantha. So we are thrilled to welcome Samantha Gross to the program this week. She is a political reporter at the Boston Globe. Uh, Sam's from Indiana originally. She came to Boston to attend Boston University. While at BU, she worked for papers including the Lowell Sun and the Dallas Morning News. After graduation, she covered Florida politics and local government at the Miami Herald and the Tampa Bay Times before we brought her back here in Boston to cover politics for the Globe. So, Sam, thank you so much for coming on and joining us for this Massachusetts-centric episode. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Before we get into the questions about like what's going on here in Massachusetts, just a couple like quick bio questions is what brought you to Boston? Was it just BU? And if so, like what about BU like brought you out here? Yeah, I came here first to go to BU. Um, I am from outside of Chicago in Northwest Indiana. Um, and I always wanted to go to a city school. I wanted to do journalism and be somewhere where I could get some hands-on experience while I was in school. Um, and Chicago was a little close to home <laughs> and New York was a little bit too big for me. I was a little bit, um, someone coming from a town of 20,000 people in Indiana, I was a little bit intimidated. Um, and I came to tour a few schools in Boston and I ended up really liking BU and its program and, the emphasis that it gives like communication students um, to, to study other things. There's a lot of requirements to like focus on things in the college of arts and sciences. Um, so I got to take a lot of other classes and that drew me into BU. And I, I really liked Boston, my four years there. Um, I was sad to leave when I graduated, but about four years later, I'm back. Um, so I'm glad to, to be back. Well, we're thrilled to have you back, uh, certainly selfishly. And then I guess selfishly from Massachusetts, like to have you working at the Globe is great. Ricky, I didn't even realize this, but um, Kornacki, who we had on last week, also was a B graduate. Sam, I don't know if you if you knew that too. So yep. <laughs> you, friend of the pod, we love that. Um, so <laughs> like you mentioned, you were down in Florida for a few years. What brought you back here? Yeah, I mean, I think I always knew um, I would want to work at the Globe someday. I did a co-op at the Globe when I was in college. Um, and I got to do some freelancing for the Globe and I worked some Saturday shifts and I always was kind of trying to spend time there um, through college. And the opportunity presented itself that there was a job open. Um, and yeah, it's always been something I've, I've wanted to return to. I loved covering Florida. I was really sad to leave. Um, I think Florida is an awesome place to learn how to cover politics kind of a baptism by fire um but i was you know really really glad to return home to boston too yeah well again welcome back um in contrast to florida which like you said is fascinating politically massachusetts 
perhaps a little less fascinating, particularly in, in this cycle of elections. So I, I wanted to start by just looking at the statewide elections that we have in November, about a month away at this point. I'm just going to run down the candidates for all of them. And then my question to you is going to be, are any of these races going to be competitive? So um, for everyone out there, the the headline, the big ticket office on the ballot in Massachusetts is for governor, lieutenant governor, um, Jeff Deal and Leah Allen are the Republican candidates. Mar Healy and Kim Driscoll are the Democratic candidates, and Kevin Reed and Peter Everett are the Libertarian candidates. Also in statewide office, Attorney General um, Andrea Campbell is the Democratic candidate. Jay McMahon is a Republican candidate. Secretary of State, there are three people running. Um, Bill Galvin, the incumbent, is the Democratic candidate. Rayla Campbell is the Republican candidate, and Juan Sanchez is the Green Rainbow Party candidate. Treasurer, we have... Uh, Two people in the race, Deb Goldberg, the Democratic incumbent, and Christina Crawford, who is a Libertarian candidate. Uh, and then Auditor is the the race with the most candidates, Anthony Amore, uh, the Republican, Diana DiZoglio, uh, Democratic candidate, Gloria Caballero Roca is the Green Rainbow Party candidate, Dominic Gioni is the Workers' Party candidate, and Daniel Reek is the Libertarian candidate. So a pretty um, crowded Auditor field. So back to my question, any of these statewide races going to be competitive? Yeah, I mean, I think the auditor's race is one to watch if you're looking at a competitive general election race. Most of these Democratic primaries were very competitive, um, aside from the governor's race. And so I think, you know, there was a lot more excitement there before September. Um, But now, you know, looking at the auditor's race, the interesting thing here is that the Republican candidate, um, Anthony Amore, is endorsed by Charlie Baker, which is probably like the heftiest endorsement that any Republican candidate running statewide has at this point. Um, Anthony Amore doesn't super affiliate himself with the current structure of the Republican Party in Massachusetts, um, which is the party run by Jim Lyons, um, famously called Charlie Baker, a rhino, Republican in name only, and kind of distanced the party from the Charlie Baker brand of moderate Republicans in the state. So Anthony Amore kind of falls um, closer to Charlie Baker. I mean, people may draw that line. It's unclear, like how true that really is, but he's um, yeah. Like I think, you know, he would like to fashion himself as someone who's similar to Baker. And I think that makes the race one to watch. So if we got one race, we got the auditor's race. <laughs> so I guess, Sam, I know you haven't been back here that long, but, what do you what do you chalk that up to? It's disappointing in some ways for people that like good contested general elections where you feel like kind of iron sharpens iron and we bring the best out of each other through a series of debates and a dialogue of ideas. And it doesn't really appear that we're going to have it because not, like the first four races, which are theoretically like top of the ballot type races, as you said, are not going to be competitive. So what do you, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a few things. I think that there's a very short runway between the primary election and general election in Massachusetts. Um, It's one of the latest primaries in the country. And so in order to be a successful candidate, um, you have to like have a lot of money and backing kind of already going into the primary. And so it almost like narrows the field for who can be successful in the end. And um, it leaves voters without as much of a choice. Um, I also think that the current state of the Republican Party um, has alienated a lot of people here. So there's not 
the excitement, the money, the, um, yeah, like the heft behind some of these candidates as maybe there would have been in other election years um, in the past. So I think there's a few things. I, I do think, you know, talking to voting experts and people who study political science, um, I've done a few stories on this cycle where it's kind of like, without a choice, you know, it's bad for democracy. Um, and I think it is something that definitely was present in the primary election for governor. And, you know, something that people are kind of thinking about in the general election as well. Yeah. Oh, kind of along those same lines, I want to look at least the the federal election. So neither of our senators are up for election this year. But as always, all nine congressional districts are up for election here. All of the races are competitive between a Republican and a Democrat. And by competitive, I mean are being competed for by a Republican and Democrat, except for the 4th District. Jay Goshenklaus is, is running unopposed. And then in the 6th District, we have a three-way race between a Democrat, a Republican, and a Libertarian. Same question, Sam. Do you see any of these races being competitive? Um, not really. <laughs> 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 it's, you know, it's it's interesting, like... When you look at these, um, this list of candidates, I mean, these are incumbents who um, have a lot of power in Massachusetts, especially. There's a lot of backing for incumbents um, in the par- among the party, among the Democrat Party. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, <laughs> I haven't singled out one congressional race to watch, um, and yeah, that's just kind of the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, like our, our senators are are sort of more along the lines of household names, but I wouldn't say the same was true for the congressman in the House. Um, I guess in covering a state like Massachusetts versus someplace like Florida, how much is it or how much does it feel like voters just go and tick the, you know, they're pulling the Democrat ballot in the primary and then when they get to the general, they're just taking the box. How much does it feel like that's the story or or is there real sort of support and enthusiasm for candidates? And if there are, for whom are you really are you really feeling it? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are people who are, you know, running for Congress, who are incumbents, who have been representatives in Congress, who are household names in Massachusetts, like people like, you know, Congressman Ayanna Presley, um, Catherine Clark, who's kind of like second uh, second to the Speaker of the House, like, um, you know, Laurie Trahan, like these are people who kind of do have a statewide profile because they've campaigned alongside people like Maura Healy and Andrea Campbell, who's running for attorney general and have kind of used their power and their money to help other candidates. So I think that there's some excitement for those people who like make headlines and may like represent the views of people even if they don't live in their district um in washington but yeah i mean there are other people who have been representatives in congress for a few terms who not everyone maybe knows um though you know the districts are like not that small like i i feel like there's you know some name recognition especially people who have been around for a long time but it is you know i think it just depends um in Florida, I think that there's a little bit more um, competition for some of the seats. It depends on what part of the state. And obviously, it's huge, but very different from, um, you know, Massachusetts. We only have, you know, a handful. But, like, I, I think it's just a different dynamic. Um, and I think that some of the, the people who represent these districts in Congress have more of a statewide appeal. 
Sure. So if you had just listened to like the first 10 minutes of this, there would be, you might be feeling a lack of incentive to go out and vote in a month here in the Massachusetts general election. But there are actually four really interesting and important ballot questions that we are going to have to vote on here in Massachusetts in a month. And so this is, even if we might think that we know what the outcomes of all the major races with candidates are going to be, these are going to be the four questions that are probably going to have the biggest impact on on Massachusetts over over the next several years. And so I, I want to go through these a little bit and um, just looking at this and Ricky, you and I talked about this a couple of years ago when there were ballot questions of like how confusing some of these things can be, even for people that like think they're smart and are trying to prepare themselves like, like we are. So that's why I'm thrilled, Sam, that you're here to hopefully shed a little more light on them. So I'm going to go through, I'll just do a quick summary of um, the first question. And then if you can shed any light on anything that people out there, voters should know as they're considering how to vote on this first question. So the first question is a proposed amendment to the Massachusetts State Constitution, which would place an additional tax on income over $1 million. Essentially, just as a little bit of background, Massachusetts has a flat 5% income tax rate. This would establish an additional 4% state income tax on taxable income above $1 million. The revenue generated by this tax would be used subject to legislative appropriation for education and infrastructure, essentially. So public education um, from K to 12, public colleges and universities, and for like the repair and maintenance of roads, bridges, public transportation. So Sam, what can you tell us about this? Who's who's backing? Who's against it? What what are you seeing out there in terms of support? Yeah, um, so you summarize this well, it creates a 4% surtax on annual income over 1 million. Um, and the you know, like you said, the money is supposed to go toward education and infrastructure subject to legislative, you know, approval and dissemination. I think right now a big part of the conversation is the fact that the money ultimately or the fact that where the money ultimately goes does rest with lawmakers on Beacon Hill um, who don't really have an obligation to use the revenue exactly as the fair share amendment proponents. That's what they call it, the fair share amendment proponents are pitching um we've talked to lawmakers about this you know there's not a lot of assurances that the money would go exactly where the proponents say it will go it's kind of a level of trust there um it seems at this juncture with like the ads that are being run on either side it's more of a question of like do you trust the lawmakers on beacon hill to use this money and carry it out in the way that they've intended or you know like it's more of an open question um this year we saw you know a huge amount of surplus in the state coffers so much so that the state is obligated under a 1986 law to give it back so i think that there's kind of a question around this question one of like you know do we need more surplus like and should lawmakers be held to a different standard to like get it out to the you know, the different projects that it should be funding. Um, However, there's an argument that the roads need fixing, the schools need money, like there are are real needs around the state. And there are also a lot of millionaires and, you know, millionaires and richer um, in Massachusetts. So I think there's a little bit of self-awareness that the state could have too on on what what to do about this. Um, 
and yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's definitely um, polarizing. I know people who felt really sure about it um, at first and have kind of started to waffle a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't know, people like helping public colleges and universities and helping public schools is a cell that I think a lot of people could get behind in the state. Um, it's a state that's known for its commonwealth, right? So anyway. Well, I think you you did a really nice job kind of summarizing both sides of the issue here. Have you seen any data or do you have any information about like where what we think is going to happen here? Do you think this is going like 50-50 is close or or what are you seeing? Um, That's a really good question. I have not seen a ton of recent polling. Um, There's been a lot of statewide ads that have come after the most recent polling that I've seen. So I feel like that could really affect things. Um, Yeah, I think it's hard to say, like, there are real needs. And I think that argument sticks with a lot of people. Um, So I think we're really just going to have to see on election day. All right, I'm getting into the second ballot question, which is, at least in my opinion, the least interesting of the four, but I do want to touch on it briefly. So this is about the regulation of dental insurance. And essentially, this would place more oversight from the state government on dental insurance here in Massachusetts to limit to really to force insurers to provide like dental insurance to put more of the premium dollars that they collect towards medical costs and quality improvement in their services as opposed to administrative costs, i.e. like paying their CEOs a boatload of money. Um, Sam, what else can you tell us? about? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, one thing that I found interesting that I didn't know about Massachusetts um, until this question came up is that right now there are no, there's no minimum threshold for how much of the premiums need to be spent on patient care. Um, from dental insurers today. So there's really no bar for them to reach. Um, So this would create that and it would create like 83% of the premiums would have to go toward patients. Um, It's a very clear battle between dentists um, and primarily Delta Dental, which is an insurer in Massachusetts, who is putting a lot of money against this effort. it, it actually was an orthodontist who paid to get this on the ballot, essentially. Um, he paid like half a million dollars last year to get signature gatherers to go out and get it on the ballot. Um, other dentists chipped in looking at kind of the, the breakdown of um, the donations to this uh, committee. But yeah, basically it's been bankrolled by an orthodontist um, who really wanted to get this on the ballot and yeah, on the opposing side, it's much smaller um, in terms of money. Delta Dental um, is a big one. And then some other insurers, including MetLife, um, Concordia, and Sun Life also chipped in. I've seen some that or some conversation that this or the result of this ballot question could have some like national implications. Like how different would this make us or make the state of Massachusetts or yeah, relative to like some other states? And do you know if they have any similar types of things? It's a really good question. Um, I haven't been reporting on question two as closely as some of the other questions. So I would have to get back to you guys on that. Um, But I do know that when states make regulations like this, it does often have a ripple effect because there's competition. And also there are many insurers that insure like regional, um, you know, they have like regional 
breach. <laughs> so, you know, by affecting what the premiums would have to go toward in Massachusetts could affect places like, you know, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, other places that may be covered by the same insurers. All right. So moving on to question three. Question three is about the expanded availability of licenses for the sale of alcoholic beverages. At first glance, sounds like a no-brainer, Ricky. But uh, this is actually like a couple of things going on here where it's like increasing the limits that suppliers can have for like licenses for quote all alcoholic beverages or quote wines and malt liquor so it increases now there's like now a limit of nine it would go up to 12 15 18 etc um but also capping a limit on the number like the the number of places that could sell sell that one retailer could sell quote all alcoholic beverages so actually reading this i'm not entirely sure what it is so like generally speaking i was like all right cool sounds good but uh, sam what's this what's this question telling us yeah um so the question basically would double the number of locations one company could sell beer or wine so if a cumberland farms um can sell beer or wine at you know a dozen locations in the region they there's like a graduated kind of way for them to build up and like get almost you know double the number of locations that they could sell so like you said um there really isn't a ton of opposition to this question there has been in the past um like this has come up before the massachusetts food association the new england convenience store association um people who don't want necessarily that competition um if they're not selling alcohol have opposed it but this time they're kind of staying out of the race um the Retailers Association, which is a kind of powerful board, they voted to oppose it, um, but haven't spent any money opposing it or like having any research resources opposing it. Um, and yeah, it's um, <laughs> I don't really know what more to say. It, so it, essentially, like if this passes, given the lack of opposition, there will now just be more places for people to buy alcohol in Massachusetts. Uh, yeah, <laughs> essentially, um, right. yeah, I was right. it no would way. be over <laughs> 10 years. So it kind of, it like, you know, it's a, it's a graduated situation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's the reason that Trader Joe's in, in Seaport doesn't sell beer or wine. Cause they had to like reallocate where they had their licenses yeah. in the past. But, but I mean, it is an interesting question that sometimes these things come about almost unopposed, but you were saying it like in the past, this one was specifically kind of opposed by the smaller retailers, right? They didn't want the almost like the big box shops having um, or the ability to kind of expand their reach in terms of where they could sell. Right. And yeah, I mean, the big box stores, kind of out-of-state companies that would come in and do this. Um, yeah, like the so-called packies here in Massachusetts were against it. Um, but these stores kept trying to get it on the ballot and, you know, it eventually... Did I, I just think the interesting thing about this question is the lack of opposition. And it's kind of unclear whether it's just like the momentum that wasn't had this year or the you know lack of money from the people who've kind of been representing the smaller stores. But um, yeah, I mean, the big chains have kind of taken advantage of this. And yeah, it'll <laughs> be interesting to see what happens. I, I you know, I think that this is another question similar to um, question two, where people don't really understand um the way that it's presented 
on the ballot. And so I think it'll be up to these groups to like educate voters ahead of election day. Yeah, I certainly did. All right, but let's get into number four, which along with number one is probably the most objectively interesting and controversial polarizing. So question number four is about whether eligibility for driver's license, whether or not undocumented or illegal immigrants in Massachusetts would be available to obtain Massachusetts driver's licenses. So this actually passed in the Massachusetts Congress. So it passed the House, it passed the Senate earlier this year, went up to Governor Baker, Governor Baker vetoed it, went back to Congress, and they overrode his veto with two thirds in the House and the Senate. So it was going to become law. That is until a bunch of Massachusetts Republicans went on a signature drive this summer and remarkably, in, in some ways, gathered over 100,000 signatures over the course of just a couple of months to get it on the ballot. It did not. So for people who live in Massachusetts, we get sent from the Secretary of State all a list of all the people running and all of the questions with like the arguments pro and con. This didn't make it into that packet that you have sitting in your house. If you're a Republican, you say typical Bill Galvin, just looking out for the Democrats, doesn't want this in front of voters. If you're a Democrat, you say, well, there's always a deadline, which is like early July to get these questions in. Then just kind of two ways to spin the same thing. But this is a really important question. And um, so essentially a, a yes vote here would um, would keep in place the law that the legislature voted for earlier this year, which that if you live here in Massachusetts and you can't provide proof of like a lawful residence, as in like a, a birth certificate or a green card or citizenship, um, you would still be able to obtain a driver's license if you meet re- meet the requirements for doing so, at, like like any other resident of Massachusetts. So you would have to go out and pass a, a driver's test. You have, a, have to obtain insurance, just like anybody else living in Massachusetts. A no vote would repeal a law and keep it so that if, unless you can prove citizenship, here in Massachusetts, then you would not be able to obtain a driver's license. So um, Sam, what do you got on this one? (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely um, one of the most contentious questions and also one of the questions that the most money is being poured into um, to, yeah, to basically campaign. Um, It's interesting because immigration has kind of become the issue of the year for Republicans nationwide. And it seems that Massachusetts Republicans um, are kind of capitalizing on that and using this question probably as a way to turn up voters um, and to get people excited about voting in this race or in this election. Um, As you mentioned, this is a question to address an existing law that was passed by the legislature after they overrode a veto, um, which is confusing. I think there's some confusion about this question you mentioned that it doesn't come in the red packet that people get in their mailboxes, which doesn't really help, um, where people think that you're voting to repeal this law and voting yes means, yes, I want to repeal this law. And voting no means, no, I don't want to repeal this law, which is it's the other way around. So yes, I want to keep the law. Um, or no, I want to repeal the law. So it's been really interesting. I mean, yeah, the Republican-led group gathered a ton of signatures in a short amount of time. They were out all over the state. They had hired signature gatherers and they got some money um, from some pretty wealthy folks here, including Rick Green from A1 Auto um, to bankroll this. And yeah, um, (laughs) the immigration conversation in Massachusetts has been kind of top of mind lately, even though this doesn't, 
isn't really addressing immigration. And I think that's kind of a misconception. Um, it, you know, is kind of tied to that and has been, you know, big point of conversation. There's been two debates on it. You know, we don't often see debates like that for a ballot question. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And there's, um, you know, TV ads for it too. So it's, you know, serious. <laughs> so I guess, I guess we're coming up on the half hour here. So right before we let you go, obviously we've talked about the races that are uh, potentially not that, not that interesting. And then we've got um, some valid questions, which definitely are, but are there any, is there anything else that you're kind of really honed in on in this election cycle? Um, something that maybe is not kind of being talked about, but you're, you're kind of tracking because it, I don't know, either you feel like it's going to tell you something about how some of the elections across the country are going to turn out or, or really just anything, any, any parting thoughts uh, for us. I mean, I do think that the kind of reflection on why we don't have as many competitive statewide elections is something just to really think hard about. Um, something I've been thinking about is what the state looks like with a Democratic governor. It's been a long time since we've had one um, and kind of trying to see like what that will look like as it trickles down, to, like even at the legislative level, um, what types of legislation that they are going to try to do that maybe they didn't feel like they could do with a Republican governor. Um in Florida, I saw kind of what it looks like when there's one party in basically every branch. Um, and there are very like serious implications of that. And I, I just am kind of curious to see how that plays out here. Um, and yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I think that covering the primaries is definitely a little bit more competitive and interesting, but I do think that there's some really interesting things to watch. Ballot questions are important. Um, and people should read into them before they vote <laughs> would be my parting words and listen to this and so they'd be all they'd have a good time yeah and listen to this <laughs> and read the globe's coverage that would be <laughs> there you go perfect so yeah Sam, on that if people do want to follow your stuff where can they look yeah um so all my work is in the boston globe bostonglobe.com um you can follow me on twitter at samantha j gross um and you can email me any questions you have at uh, samantha.gross at globe.com. He gets back to you. I can, I can, I can. <laughs> so, uh, Sam, thanks so much for your time, for providing a little insight and clarity on some of the ballot questions in particular. I, I think it's very valuable for me and I'm sure for people that are listening. So thank you. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you both. Thank All you. Right. See you soon. Bye. So once again, thanks a ton um, to Samantha for spending some time with us tonight. I think it's super illuminating. And I think what she said at the end is, I just want to echo it, is that I imagine there's a fair amount of people here in Massachusetts that are looking at this ballot and being like, my vote doesn't matter. But it does. Like th these ballot questions are the ones that are actually probably going to have the most tangible effect on your life in a lot of ways. And that these are things that are important. And a lot of them I do think are going to be very close in which case like people's votes do matter. So it's important not just to vote, but to educate yourself before you vote, because as she alluded to, this is not easy stuff. So Ricky, she gave us the objective overview of these, but I'd be curious just from your perspective to run through them. And not that you have to commit because I know that I'm not ready to commit on some of these yet, but just, I would like, I'd be curious to see where your head's at with, with the question. So again, question one was about the so-called millionaires text. 
the fair share amendment. What are you thinking right now? A month out. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm a big tax the rich guy. Yeah, uh, you are. <laughs> I always have, I, it's like, it's, uh, I don't know if the square peg in a round hole is like the right. Um, it just, sometimes the way these things come out, it just feels like too blunt of an instrument. Um, I, I think in general, a progressive, like a sliding scale tax that is more dialed into various levels of income is just like a lot better than uh, if you meet the million dollar cliff, then you're, you know, every dollar after that is taxed at 9% versus 5%. If you don't, you know, everything up to that is 5%. Like, I think that the idea is fine. I just don't think that it necessarily makes sense. I worry about like, I already know how, you know, folks in California or New York figure out ways to have property in other places that don't have state tax. And then they start to claim residency. And, you know, with the new landscape of remote work, it's a lot easier to do that. Um, and and effectively, you know, what is the what will end up being the net benefit? Obviously, exactly as Sam said, like we need money for infrastructure. It's like weird that the government, the state government is running a surplus when the T is like falling apart. We still have issues with roads and like we definitely need money for our public universities and, you know, education more broadly. So like, uh, yeah, like you said, very conflicted. I think in general, we could be more creative with our tax code, like a flat 5% tax. I don't think makes sense. I think some people lower on the tax bracket should be not paying as much and some people higher could probably afford to pay more but um i it's a weird it's a weird like the ballot question is maybe a weird place to put something like this i don't know how you're feeling what's your initial take right i think the ballot question the way it's phrased is done so intentionally to make it seem really obvious because voting on complicated ballot measures is tricky and trying to like do like a graduated income tax on the ballot is going to be like well taxes are going up all over the place you know i mean that's just not really feasible so what you what do you do you say it's a millionaire's tax and to a lot of people in the state a million dollars is a ton of money and so those are like the really rich people out there and so you can say yeah it's it's let them pay we're we're already paying enough and i mean i think there are certainly different ways to look at fairness is like the fairness of different tax codes but five percent across the board you know five percent of 30,000 is a lot different than 5% of 300,000 or 3 million like in terms of just percentages. And you could certainly say it's, it's not really fair. Like you pointed to like the graduated tax rate. People probably know that federal tax rates, there are seven different tax brackets. There's only one here in Massachusetts. And again, this is probably not going to come as a shock to anybody who lives in Massachusetts, but Massachusetts is, has one of the highest income inequalities of any state in the country. So Massachusetts is great at a lot of things, but I think we have, I read the seventh highest income inequality in in the country um, of any state in the country that the top 20% has 14 times as much income as the bottom 20%. And so in, I mean, we don't have to even say it, but I guess I suppose I will, that this largely falls upon racial lines and the, the racial wealth gaps in Massachusetts are up there with as bad as any other state in the country. And so, yeah, I think there's, these are like legitimate like uh, structural problems that we here have here in Massachusetts that we can maybe, and you know what I like about it is that it's theoretically going to education, which is one of the main ways, in my opinion, that you fix 
income and racial inequality is you make sure that everyone has quality access to a quality education. And I think too often in Massachusetts, we pat ourselves on the back of like, look at our school systems, which are consistently rated like the top of the country. Well, oftentimes they're buoyed because they're the Weston school system and it's the Wellesley school system, right? And it's it's not necessarily the Boston school system or the Lowell school system, the Fall River school system. And so it's it's what what which kids are, are getting really quality education. And, and we've talked repeatedly when we talk about student loans about how states in general and Massachusetts in particular has devoted less and less of its resources to public universities, which has increased costs for anybody just trying to attend a UMass or a Bridgewater State or something like that. So yeah, I mean, I think, like Sam said, it's is appealing in a lot of ways. I do think she highlighted a, a key point where it's like we really just have to trust that the legislature, the legislature is going to put it towards this. I mean, I can see it easily, if not next year, within like five years of them being like healthcare costs continue to rise. We have another one point five billion sitting around. Let's just put it towards that. And and again, my reluctance to increase taxes in general and to give government more money as sam said at once particularly when we're at a time when we're swimming the government is swimming in a surplus and people are struggling with rising inflation yeah i I think i'm leaning no but damn i do i think there's a good argument for yes so i think this is my this is how i feel about ballot questions one i would love to see more of them on the federal level but two i don't think tax code belongs on the ballot right like there's a like there's a time and place for simple, straightforward questions and like, you know, things that are very social policy oriented, you know, things like abortion, for instance. I think that kind of issue that is, I mean, we've we've certainly talked ad nauseum about the gray areas, but like the concept, I think those are the types of things that belong on the ballot so that, you know, you don't have government dictating what socially should be acceptable or not acceptable like people should be able to decide that but things like tax code and appropriations that is specifically what we should be electing people to do and then they should spend the time to do it and do it right and you like you know what i mean like these are i remember this question from it was one of the maybe two years ago it must have been two years ago i guess that it was like nurses, how many nurse to patient ratios? Like, should we have a mandated nurse to patient ratio? And it's like, don't ask me that. I literally have absolutely no idea. And then every ad is telling me nurses say yes, nurses say no. And I was just like, this is not for us to decide. This is not what individual, like everyday people should be deciding. This is why we elect people whose job it is to really understand the issues and make the tough decisions and explain them to us after the fact. Right. Like we can't run a government by ballot question, but there should I mean, there should be avenues for feedback. But this like this is where I get conflicted on, you know, what are we using this tool for? And is it being appropriately? Yeah. Wow, I just got fired up about the ballot. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, just in general. OK. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Appreciate it. Well, uh, let's let's continue rolling through the question. Do you have any thoughts on the second question, which was the dental insurance question? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's a similar line where, like, obviously, I think that it's good. And, the, you know, the way proponents of it are could can frame it is that, like, yeah, 
obviously your premium should go towards dental care and not to like the corporate fat cats who are taking the money. But I think Sam was like sort of alluding to that. Yeah. Premiums in Massachusetts may subsidize some way that, you know, premiums are covered in New Hampshire where they have like fewer people and maybe less money. Right. And do, you know, as a citizen of Massachusetts, am I super pumped about that? No, maybe, but like for the broader good, if I don't really notice it, is it, is that like, okay, there are just a lot of things that I don't understand about it. And another thing that seems a little puzzling to me is like why the dentists are banding together to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for this. This is not like some like patient care, like organization. These are the guys who are standing to get the checks from the dental companies, right? Oh, you need another root canal. That's going to be another $10,000. Yeah. Right. Right. So it's like, mm, I like, like, I think I'm in favor of it, but I'm also a little nervous as to, yeah, why they're so pro and like, yeah, what the situ- what the current situation is now and, and what are the real implications? Like, I don't, I'm not sure I really understand. Right. And I think, again, like the premise on the surface is that like, of course, like if I'm paying premiums, I want that to be used on the patients. Like, I don't, I don't need another, like you said, a fat cat to go from making 10 million to $20 million next year. I'd prefer it be used on me. And if it's not on me, I want it to be used on you. You know, like right. that, that seems more fair to me. That That's what I'm paying for. Right. But on the other hand, like you said, and I think you alluded to this in your conversation when we were talking with Sam, where you said there's no other law like this in the nation. It's actually not in Obamacare at all. Like right. they, the Congress explicitly left out dental insurance as opposed to medical insurance. And that makes me think they probably know something that I don't <laughs> like that, that like, it's probably not a good thing if we put so much capital into like fixing the medical insurance, not that it's fixed, but like making it better. And we were pretty much just like, no, let's leave dentists separate. I'm not sure that we should be the ones here in Massachusetts that are voting, not knowing like the potential consequences. And so largely, even though I would like to think that dental like insurance companies would spend more money on premiums, I'm not so sure I need more government regulation of the industry. Yeah. Or yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. I just don't exactly know what, what that means at the end of the day. And I mean, insurance is to some degree not necessarily supposed to be paid out all the time. Like you pay it so that when you have a problem, you have to, and I'm I'm not saying that the rates that I don't, I don't know how the rates that I pay equate to how much I'm getting on a care side of things, but like, it's, it's, it's confusing. And it seems like, yeah, I, I don't know. It just, yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, three, the alcoholic beverages, sale of alcoholic beverages. I'm I'm also in, I I will say the way that you actually kind of made me hesitate a little bit being like, why is there no opposition? And Sam being like, well, I'm not totally sure. Maybe the small, like the the local package just kind of ran out of money and all of like the, the big bad corporate people just like continue to throw money at this to get it on the ballot. And it's just as expanded access to liquor licenses and people like me are going to be like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Right. And so I don't know. I'm a little confused. Like she's like, she said that even she wasn't sure like why there was no opposition to it, but yeah, I mean, I guess like in general competition is a good thing and having more places that can sell alcohol is probably a good thing for people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I guess my one concern was that like this year or this election of all elections coming off of the 
coming off of the pandemic and it was just like, you know, smaller businesses don't have that surplus cash to kind of fight these ballot initiatives um, definitely has me concerned. Although my packy down the street rips me off anytime I'm in a jam, <laughs> I need to get <laughs> I need to get some beers. The prices are ridiculous. <laughs> so, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, if the local Seven Eleven has has beer stocked over there, maybe the prices go down a little bit. <laughs> exactly. All right. In, in more serious ballot questions, this last one. I again torn, leaning one way, but still, I'm very much open to be swayed on over this last month. So again, this is the whether undocumented immigrants in Massachusetts would get access to be able to obtain driver's licenses. What are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I think this one almost frustrates me a little bit, be just based on like, you know, what you ha- like, how we create laws in the state and went through the process, got vetoed by the governor, which is all, you know, all well and good within sort of the, the bounds of the, uh, design of of our system but then went back and still passed a two-thirds majority in in the in the massachusetts house so like for me this is kind of a done deal i personally support the idea of uh of anybody who's driving a car to be licensed in the state and i think that this really is i and i know that it's being made out to be this like huge immigration issue and that like you know, we become more of a sanctuary city if we're giving these people IDs. But now basically our ID just doesn't confer anything about citizenship, but it does confer something about knowing the rules of the road. And and hopefully, you know, when accidents and things happen, we'll make people, whether documented or not, more likely to cooperate with authorities, not flee the scene and you know the the other sort of things that come with it right the ideas behind the the legislation in the first place i think those benefits outweigh some of the costs and i don't think that this id will really i mean yeah potentially adds a little bit of legitimacy to somebody who's here under uh not illegitimate sort of circumstances but i think to me that's a smaller price to pay um and some of the problems that we've had with people who are uh, considered illegal and don't have any or don't feel like they have any avenues to work with local law enforcement or sort of participate in their communities. Yeah, uh, again, conflicted on this one. The, the woman that led the signature drive, which, again, it was incredibly impressive. However, whatever side you're on to be able to get out and do a hundred thousand signatures on anything and to do it in a few months is, is impressive. And I think speaks to that. There is going to be some serious opposition to this. So her woman, her, I mean, the woman that was in charge of this, her son was killed by a driver who was undocumented 10 years ago. And so she had a very personal stake in this, but I think what you are saying makes me go back to like, and maybe this would have been, it wouldn't have mattered whether the person was undocumented or not. It was just, you know, a terrible accident, but is it the fact that the person was undocumented? Like, because that's obviously what Republicans are going to focus on, right? We have this another another undocumented immigrant is is creating crimes and killing American citizens. Or is it that this person never passed the driver's test and actually wasn't, potentially wasn't safe to be on the road and wasn't able to be insured, right? Is that the real issue why we have people like that on the road all the time? And I think that's where it is. Like, this is kind of a reality where I saw back a, uh, like census survey taken back in 2016 found that 
that there were almost 250,000 undocumented immigrants here in Massachusetts. So like 4% of our population, like it's just, it's a reality of our state that they live in, in amongst us. They are our neighbors. They are you know, uh, people that work for us and that we work for and with us. And, um, you know, their, their kids go to school with our kids, right? Like it's, it's all, those are, it's just a fact. And so are you going to allow those people to more easily assimilate into society and drive to work and drive their kids to school and obtain insurance like we are and be more willing to co- cooperate with police, whether they did something wrong or something was done against them. I think that's, there's good arguments to be made for that. Obviously there are counterpoints too, where it's like, you're just all, allowing people that have already broken the law to get all of the benefits of a traditional citizen of people that went through the process the right way or you know, people that were, were born here. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I think that that's what it's being made out to. I don't know that it really confers any additional benefits beyond the fact that other drivers are now more safe because more people are being, uh, are being required, are submitting to road tests and, 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 you know, getting licensed. I think, I think the other question about, you know, the, I actually didn't know who, who was behind the signature drive, but obviously someone who has suffered a, a a great tragedy in 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 what happened to to her son but like yeah saying that it happened because the driver was specifically undocumented and or right like yeah that the ballot would have either facilitated that doesn't make doesn't really make sense to me and then nationally there have been plenty of these studies that show that people who are undocumented actually commit crimes at a far lower rate than natural born citizens, primarily because they're very scared of being deported. So it's not, it, yeah, I, yeah, it, it, it is, but it is interesting, right? Like how do we pull this all together and make the crime and safety and that story front and center? I think that's important to the Republican narrative. I just don't know that it's going to work here. I actually expect that measure to fail. Although no, yes is yes is to retain the law. No is to repeal it, right, or something. I don't even know. Right. So, yes, exactly. So yes would be essentially yes is yes. I want to give undocumented immigrants licenses. No, I don't want to give undocumented. That's the way to think of it. That's how it should be pitched. But, but it's confusing based on who. Of course, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um. But so Ricky, I was kind of leaning yes on this, and then I went back and I looked at Governor Baker's veto. Because Baker is not the people that really were behind the signature drive are kind of the Trump mega Republicans. And I think it's it was would have been more easy for me just to write them off as like far right extremists that are against illegal immigration and think that this is one way that we can protect against that. But Governor Baker is not that. And he had no incentive to to appeal to the Republican base. You know, he was retiring. He he could have done whatever he wanted. And still he he vetoed it. And so I just wanted to give you like his reasoning. He wrote a little letter explaining why he vetoed it and see if this swayed you at all. So um, he says, quote, I cannot sign this legislation because it requires the registry of motor vehicles to issue state credentials to people without the ability to verify their identity. The registry does not have the expertise or ability to verify the validity of many types of documents from other countries. Consequently, a standard Massachusetts driver's license will no longer confirm that a person is who they say they are. The bill fails to include any measures to distinguish standard Massachusetts driver's licenses issued 
to persons who demonstrate lawful presence from those who do not. And it restricts the registry's ability to share citizenship information with those entities responsible for ensuring that only citizens register for and vote in our elections. Yeah, I mean, maybe a little bit, but not really. I mean, in general, right, like now you have to get the real ID if you want to be able to apply or really do any of those things. That requires a passport or some significant form of documentation. I like I I think a lot of these issues can be addressed. I, I don't I don't think they're not worth addressing. And perhaps this particular legislation like doesn't necessarily cover all of the potential loopholes that like the that the governor outlined at the end of the day. I don't I don't I don't I guess I have a little more trust in, in lawmakers that they're not just going to turn this into some kind of free for all. But maybe that faith is misplaced. But I guess, again, at the end of the day, I'm less concerned about people who live here voting, even if they're technically not American citizens you know, voting in Massachusetts elections, like, and, and those, and doing so as a, not a citizen carries a risk, right? Like it, it's still, I think a felony to be like, and yeah, any type of like voter, any type of identification fraud is, is still a felony. And so there are other avenues potentially we make it a little bit easier, but I think the, I think the road safety thing is still enough that this makes sense to me more so than it doesn't, but I'm not. Um, yeah, we'll see. And so I, I looked at a poll after, actually from Suffolk and Suffolk university in the Boston globe. So I'm just bringing everyone together here in this pod. Um, this was done the last week of April. So this is before it actually got on the ballot and before all of the advertising that it, that has come and will come. So take this with a million grades of salt, but 800 people in the poll, um, 46.6% were against giving undocumented immigrants licenses. 46.1% were in support of it, and 7% were undecided. So a lot can change, obviously, from April to November, but it looks, from that poll, which is the only one I really saw, looks like it could be tight. Interesting. I read something today, just in, like, a quick Google about it. Um, I, I actually don't know who was, who was reporting it, that... that that sort of indicated that it it might fall the other way. I think something that's interesting is that a yes is to sort of maintain and a no is to actually repeal. Because one of the, one of the things that I was sort of reading about the ballot questions is that when people get confused, they just vote no out of default being like, well, yes means that I'm going to do something and no should mean that everything stays the same. And I, and I think that that's, it's uh, again, another, problem about trying to use these valid questions to govern one my little pitch for your home for taking the taking your vote home is that you can sit in the comfort of your living room and do a little googling next to the question and make sure you understand what you're voting for which the 20 seconds in the booth doesn't afford you of course you can do that ahead of time and still go in person and do it but Sometimes it's nice to be able to read the thing and uh, do the research on the fly. <laughs> uh, Ricky, I do, have, I do have one thing for you with the actual races, which, as Sam said, are, are not going to be competitive. But as she also said, we haven't had a Democratic governor in a little while. Four of our last five governors have been Republican. And despite us being a fairly liberal state, 
I think there's good reason why Massachusetts has consistently elected Republicans to balance the overwhelmingly Democratic state legislature. I don't love Jeff Deal. I don't even like Jeff Deal. With that said, talk me out of voting for Jeff Deal just because I want to put some sort of check on what is going to be a veto-proof Democratic House and a veto-proof Democratic Senate. Vote for your Republican auditor. <laughs> no, but like, do you see what I'm saying here? Like, like I do think as like Baker, as much of a quote of rhino he was, but like he yeah. does put a check in like he can kind of his presence there restrains at a certain bills from even getting to him and one certain bills get to him he has to he sends them back and they have to get a veto-proof majority which didn't happen all the time he was able to shape legislation to make it perhaps not as extreme there's not going to be anyone to do that yeah i mean i guess i would say that a deal governorship is just a veto for every piece of legislation that's going to come out of the come out of the massachusetts senate and house and i think I, I don't disagree. Like, I, I personally have not had many issues with Baker in general, in part in part because he was reasonable and obviously pretty moderate on social policy, which, like, is generally where I have the biggest issues with, na- like, Republicans nationally, is social policy. So the, the – but, I, I mean, I think, yeah, like, if you're expecting – things to change in the next four years unfortunately your only option is more healy that means that they may change not to your liking and and like i i can't necessarily fault people who are who are like yeah i i'm not a huge deal guy but i i can't i can't in good conscience vote, vote for more healy either yeah i would say either like you know skip the question get your republican treasurer and auditor in there and and hope for the best at least maybe there'll be some transparency to the to the to the changes but i I mean i think it's a fair point i think i mean i think that's why we see in many of these places both democratic and republican governors in places that are either heavy democrat or heavy republican and yeah i mean i think part of it too is is has to go back to like districting and things like that like 35 or 40 percent of the state of massachusetts is 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 registered republican 35 maybe no that's not even close but like they might actually no sorry 35 35 percent in the in the 2020 election voted for donald trump sure so there's a huge proportion of the state that feels a way that none of you know the 98 percent of the legislators in the state don't feel and so that I mean that's a real that's a real concern if you're if you are a fan of representative democracy in Massachusetts obviously nine congressmen all nine congressmen and women all democrats but it doesn't you know the lines don't the lines don't necessarily match up that way and and that's that's yeah it's got to it's got to be a problem Yeah so with that said we are Tomorrow, this will be released. When this is released, will be exactly a month out from the Massachusetts election, the general election. Um, so we hope that people, well, if you've gotten this far, we appreciate it. Um, but please encourage people around you not only to vote, but to educate themselves before they go and vote. Definitely.
All right. Well, hopefully we'll have a few more before the election, Ricky, but it's good to at least start thinking about this. Oh, I, actually, I know what I want to do. Um, a couple important dates for the people that have gotten this far and do live in Massachusetts. October 22nd, early voting opens. Um, October 29th is the last day to register to vote. And November 1st is the last day to request a mail-in ballot. So those are three days to put on your radar, which will come up probably pretty quickly. The 22nd, early voting opens, 29th, last day to register to vote, and the 1st to request a mail-in ballot. So however you end up wanting to vote, uh, make sure you take the steps to enable yourself to do that. Yeah. And I mean, I guess along those lines, if you're following along from a state that's not in Massachusetts and somehow still made it this far, you know, I think Massachusetts is a great story for, well, you know, elections that feel like, you know, your voice, whether it's pro or anti whatever party is in power, there are other things that are equally, if not more impactful to your day to day life, including these ballot questions, um, which, yeah, definitely require uh, some attention and some thought. So we we hope you, uh, you know, get to studying for this election cycle. <laughs> <laughs> Always. I did. I'll see you soon. All right. Later, man. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue debating all the issues of the day. No agenda, not yet. Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began. Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's hands. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share. Pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way That to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days will leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds, because 
Though we did not share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different mind Because though we did not Share opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments in an early morning bus, I need an early morning bus.